Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 387 with Julie Benezit. Julie has learned a thing or two about dealing with risk and uncertainty and finding the comfort in being uncomfortable. So you'll learn one, how discomfort actually brings out your best game. Two, the four steps to becoming comfortable with discomfort. And three, four self-sabotaging behaviors and how to stop them in their tracks. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F387. And while you're on over at awesomeatyourjob.com, I encourage you to check out some of our new cool stuff. And it's found right in the navigation menu where it says podcast. There's a now little drop down so you can find all kinds of extra goodies. We can find every episode that tagged by the topic, subtopic, and competency covered. You can find some of our favorite episodes, which are also in your feed at the very bottom of your podcast playing app in between episode zero and one or an A, B, C, D, E, F. Some of the very favorites based upon download data and listenership data and a great place to share with friends when you want them to learn about the show for the first time. And we also got every gold nugget indexed onto one convenient page. If you're a gold nugget subscriber, you can access the one you need all the faster. Now, here's Julie's story. Julie Benez has devoted her professional life to exploring the new, building businesses and helping others do the same. She currently works as an executive consultant, coach, and teacher following 25 years in business and law. She's the founder of The Journey of Not Knowing, a leadership development program that teaches its executives how to navigate the new. Julie spent four years as a member of the Amazon.com leadership team that brought the company from the early steep ramp-up phase to its emergence as a global established leading business. As its vice president for corporate resources and global real estate, she's credited with leading the delivery of over 7 million square feet worldwide with the supporting corporate infrastructure in just two years. Big thanks to Julie for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Julie. Julie, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Nice to be here. Well, I think we're going to have a lot of interesting discussions, but I want to start by hearing some fun tales from your time working at Amazon.com way back in 1999. <laughs> uh, I think I could probably do any story and it would be deemed insane. Uh, Amazon <laughs> was a complete adventure. Here it was a new company, new industry new organization that were reorged by the hour and no strategy, no capital budget. 
And uh, we were supposed to roll out the worldwide platform of real estate somehow. So one of the, the first big uh, pursuit we went on was the pursuit of finding a distribution center in Nevada. And uh, we had to work by uh, dark of night. In 1998, when the initiative first started, everybody wanted to know what Amazon was up to because they figured every move they made was going to be a big indicator of its strategy from which they can learn and compete. So I had to travel into Reno, Nevada with a fake name, oh. with, <laughs> which, you know, when you fly in and meet a broker there, uh, you think that having a fake name is a nothing. But you have to come into a part of the airport so they can't tell you what plane you got off. Uh, when they ask you, well, what time do you leave this morning? You have to make up a number so they can't back into where you might have flown out of. And it goes from there. So wow. we we looked around and, and I thought that was tense as part of the journey. So we looked around and uh, 500,000 square foot distribution centers aren't just lying around waiting for you. But we finally came up one that was an occupied one in a place called Fernley, Nevada. And it was about to be emptied of a large organization, corporation there that, that wasn't doing so well. So we were going to take it over. So we had proceeded to negotiate it with a developer who was going to buy it and then rent it back to us. But the key to the thing was, is we couldn't tell, disclose to them who we really were. So they knew who the broker was. So she had credibility and that allowed them to talk to us. But beyond that, they had no idea who we were. And somehow we had to convince them and they had to convince their banker that uh, this is going to be a deal worth doing. So everything was done again under cloak of darkness. So we go through this and we get to the point where we got all the deal points made and we're standing out at the distribution center. And my boss, who was the chief logistics officer, he was the formerly of Walmart, he had a large retinue of people who could come in and figure out how to create a throughput system that was the first of its kind that could process 4 million SKUs of product to individual customers, never been done before. And so he invited 24 of his closest friends, which who were all the rock stars of, of the logistics community. But the deal was, uh, again, nobody could know who we were. And, they, and anybody who was in logistics, including the people who were the managers of that plant, absolutely would have recognized these people. So we had to separate them out from our guys who came in without the benefit of a lease to sit down and have a day of brainstorming to figure out how to create a throughput system. And my job was to make sure the workers stayed at a distance from the room so they couldn't overhear names and disclose them to their bosses and keep the bosses out of the building. So this is not what I went to college to do. <laughs> so uh, we sweated our way through this. The last minute, the big boss decided he was going to fly into Reno to come out and say hi. And we said, no, 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 you can't do that because he definitely would have known these people. So we had to dash into Reno, meet him there because he wouldn't have known me, dash back, arrive back. And finally, we got our final deal point. And it's time for the big reveal. And the big reveal is when we we're going to send a non-disclosure fax to this developer to say who we were so they could turn around and tell their bank and everybody could decide if they were going to do this deal or not. 
So we get the fax ready, walk over to this to the fax machine, and all the connectivity in the building went down. Everything. So this state-of-the-art place that we're supposed to be leasing has no connectivity. And I'm sitting there thinking, um, oh oh my, um, and I'm staring out across this 7,000-person town, which is a farming community, and there's not a lot of fax machines hanging around there, much less uh, anything else. And I finally spy a Best Western motel. And I thought, well, they got those ugly old fax machines, the things with the thick piece of paper that puts out about a page a minute. So I grabbed the broker and said, we're going to the Best Western. So we fly down half a mile to the Best Western. And sure enough, they have a fax machine with a thick paper and one page per minute. And so the woman's nodding and smiling. She says, well, of course, of course. So we're sitting there and eight pages each takes a minute to, to go. So you're counting the math there. Or eight, eight, each page took eight minutes to oh, wow. process. Eight minutes per one page. Yeah. <laughs> and we have an eight page fax. So I'm sitting there thinking about what I can do in my next life. And I'm watching the motel manager coming. She's this woman and she's putting up Christmas decorations and she's offering her friends would wander in and she'd offer them blueberry muffins. And I'm watching her thinking, that looks so nice, mm. <laughs> so calm. In the meantime, the the, pay, the fat eight pages get through, and the, the broker goes outside to talk to the developer, and she gives the big the name of who it is, and they said, "Oh, okay," and that was it. Mm-hmm. And I'm a puddle by this time, and she comes back and says, "We're we're good," and I think, yeah. And, and I've just had my first heart attack. And I'm looking, I go up to pay for the facts, thinking, and all this time I've been thinking, what did I go wrong? I have, how did I choose a life that's insane like this, that challenges my heart rate, that has all this craziness? And I'm watching this woman decorating her lobby and feeding her friends with blueberry muffins. And she seems so calm and happy. Where did I go wrong? So I'm paying for the facts, and I'm just chit-chatting with her and asking where she's from. Well, she's from Claremont, California. In fact, she and I went to junior high school together. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at this and thinking, oh, it's a small world. But it was very much uh, consistent with the journey of not knowing. You never knew what you're going to come up against. And it was a challenge every step of the way. But you had to know that you loved doing this stuff because the insanity was uh, liberally applied. Yeah, well, well that, that is quite a story. And thank you for really taking us there and, and painting a picture. Well, yeah, I mean, let us talk about this book in the accompanying journal. Uh, so we got the journey of not knowing and the journal of not knowing. So it sounds like you learned a thing or two about not knowing and journeying into that. How would you articulate sort of the main point of the book? The journey of not knowing is about pursuing what it is you don't know, which is a scary place, in order to put in motion something better, a bigger idea. Uh, that we lived in the 21st century where it changes the order of the day, that we have to constantly come up with new ideas, whether it is for our team, our community, our family, our career, something that has to meet the needs of an evolving market around us. So the journey of not knowing is how you deal with the fact 
that you have to be comfortable with the discomfort of not knowing how, what's going to happen and accept that discomfort as part of the deal of getting to something better. We spend a lot of time uh, running away from scariness and say it's a bad thing and trying to de-stress and say that it, it has no value. But in fact, what I discovered, and Amazon was very much an example of this, is when you go towards the things you don't know to try something new, it brings up your best game and you really pay attention to what the possibilities are. And if you stay with it, you can get to new places that can be pretty compelling. Well, what, what I like the way you're describing this because it, it sounds so so fun, adventurous, and exciting as opposed to just terrifying and, and nerve-wracking. <laughs> what well, is terrifying and nerve-wracking, but, it's, but that's okay. You know, when I discovered, when I came upon the concept was when I was at Amazon, is that I've always had an affection for the new. I, I, even, even as a shy kid who was afraid of other people, I was always trying to turn things upside down and, and go to a different place. So Amazon was this whole concept grown large. But when we finished that Fernley deal, I came back and literally the next night I'm sitting in my office trying to... Um, enjoy, you know, in, in corporate America, the amount of time between good job well done and what have you done for me lately is about a nanosecond. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there enjoying my nanosecond and I get this phone call saying, uh, Julie, and this was the, um, the right hand of the chief logistics officer. And basically he says, Julie, we need you to go to Germany and get another 500,000 square foot warehouse. Well, I'll spare you that story. But the the key to that was, as I'm thinking about this, is okay. And of course, there's no parameters. And of course, they only they want it in three months. And of course, these things are not just lying around. And I thought of all the impossibilities that we attach to it. You know, Treasury is going to tell me, no, you can't get last minute travel. HR is going to say you can't move your people more than 30 miles from where they are now because then we'll have to do a social plan and they're expensive. Legal is going to say, oh, you know, those German lawyers are a nightmare. And IT is going to say, no way we can get the right infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just ticking off in my mind all these totally frightening things. And I'm wondering how I'm going to do this. But that's when it hit me. And that's when I realized that no matter how scary it was and how impossible this could be, no part of me didn't believe we wouldn't pull it off. And that's when I came up with the concept of the journey of not knowing is being comfortable, the discomfort of not knowing, and realizing that that just goes with the territory. But it will challenge you and it will challenge other people. But it's worth the adventure, whether, again, whether it's your career, your home life, your community, your team, whatever. Well, that sounds like a a pretty cool place to be in terms of, boy, there's going to be a bunch of challenges. I have no idea how we're going to resolve them all, but I'm certain that uh, we will. I I mean, that's that's a pretty pretty cool spot. So I'm wondering, for those who, who don't have that level of confidence and certainty when they're entering into such endeavors, how do you get to that place? Well, uh, I talk about something in the book called the core four. And the core four are four ways of mileposts to get you on the way through the journey through un- the unknown. And the first uh, one and is to, first of all, know what your dreams are. What is it you want to achieve? 
if it's a career ambition, you want to change disciplines, or you want to move up and be a senior vice president, you want to do something different with your life, that it's important first to label what your dream is and say, okay. And often your dream is something that you've been avoiding because it's too scary to you. But that may, is the one that probably has the most power. You want to uh, create a different system of team selection where the teams choose their own members rather than the manager doing it and giving much more power to the team members. And you don't know what that's going to look like, but you think that could be pretty compelling for people and a great uh, recruiting tool. So that's your, the first is your dream. And once you have a dream within that, then you have to say, who is this going to benefit? And in the journey of not knowing, your job is to work through the uncertainty to find out what you can learn about what you don't know. You know, in anything, there are things we know, like I know your name is Pete, and I know you're at the other end of a phone. <laughs> and, you know, I, I know you have this show, but I don't know what you're wearing, but I can ask you. I don't know what you're thinking right now, but I can ask you and you can tell me or you won't. And then there are the things that you can't know, be either because the other person doesn't want to tell me. Like I may sound like a, a girlfriend you had 10 years ago and you just hate even hearing my voice or and you certainly don't want to share that. Or it's something that you're not aware of. And I have to be comfortable with that. So when you're trying to figure out your dream and learning about the people who would benefit then you have to go after those things that you don't know, but you can find out. So one of the things you need to find out is what are those people, like if it's your team now, what do you need to learn about them to pull this thing off? Because you've got to get their buy-in. So that's, that's step one. And that will uh, also inform more about what that dream is going to look like. Second, step two is to get comfortable with the scariness of risk. You've heard me talk about this and um, and to accept it as part of the game. The thing that, that scariness can do for you is it doesn't have to disable, but it can raise your attention. It says, okay, I'm nervous because I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know the consequences. I don't know if people are going to like it or hate it. Um, but I really would like to try this. And I have to be with okay with that, wor that worry. And that's an important thing. Because we, In fact, there's research coming out now that in the area of mindfulness, that mindfulness is very good for applying yourself to a task you already know. But it's not so good when you apply it to something that's new that you don't have enough edge going for you. And that's certainly what I, is what I have witnessed in my career and the careers of others. You, said you don't have enough edge going for you, you said? Yeah, you don't have enough. You know, are you going to reach and stretch into a place that makes you a little nervous, but you're willing to try? Because if it's something that you feel really calm about, you've probably done it before and so have other people. So it's probably not a new enough idea. It's maybe not fixing the problem. Because a lot of these things, these new ideas, are to fix old problems that people don't want to talk about, don't want to face, or there's some person standing away that nobody wants to stare down. But that allows you to go into those places where it's not going to be easy, but it'll be worth it. So that's why it's important to go towards, not away from discomfort and recognize that is 
an empowering thing rather than a disempowering thing. Uh, The third is to watch out for self-sabotaging behaviors. And these things are defensive behaviors that I call hooks. And everybody has defensive behaviors. Defenses are just to take away discomfort. That if I am in a situation where I find that people are condescending and make me feel little and and upset, and, and yet they might be people that I really need to help me with my project, but if I find that I'm reacting that way, one defensive behavior is just to disengage, just check out or tell myself, I don't need them. You know, I figured out some other way and I walk away from it. Or a very common one is micromanagement. That micromanagement is about trying to take control of things. So uh, instead of waiting to see how something or whether something's going to turn out, instead you want that instant feedback. And when you micromanage, you know, uh, well, Pete, can you move your paper over three t- uh, inches? Could you please call so-and-so and tell them thus and thus? And would you put the stapler to the side? I do this micromanagement role play with people. And they just love it because everybody, if you haven't, if you don't know what micromanagement is, you've never worked. Uh, it's, but what it does is when you get into it, it gives you near-term comfort and gives you this sense of control, but it takes you off the pathway to something bigger. Personalizing is a big one. Personalizing is if I hear somebody criticize an event as a reflection on me, what I would instead of hearing what the value is to the, the the broader picture, it will get me and I'll spend my time worrying about my own self-esteem rather than what's going to be valuable to the organization. For example, somebody says, Julie, that was a horrible presentation. If I have a personalizing thing, I'll go into a known territory saying, oh, oh, I'm just a screw up. I mean, terrible. I, I know I should have, would have, could have. Instead of stepping back and saying, well, let's see, what went wrong there? And maybe I, they have already heard that topic before. Or maybe it's hitting a nerve ending that they've tried to address before and it didn't go so well and they'd rather not think about it. Or maybe they just heard that there were going to be layoffs and they weren't even paying attention. So what I need to do is get past that hook of personalizing and worrying about how I look and look at how the situation looks. Again, you have to go and figure out what it is you don't know. Personalizing is particularly common among women, but men do it too. It's very common, as I said, but it is one to catch yourself and say, uh-oh, get over yourself. Let's look out here and see what's going on. The final thing, and this is where the juice is, you need to find drivers to fuel your way through the unknown and the discomfort of finding out new ideas. And drivers are anything from, I am going to, I so dislike the guy who I'm competing against for this bid that there is no way in this, on this earth I'm going to let him win. So I am going to go deal with the scary analytics department who always make me feel like a moron because I know they can put together a bid that will be winning. And so that will help me push through all the discomfort that's going to take to get me there. Or more important, our core drivers. Core drivers are about who you are. What are your values? What do you care about? What are your dreams? And what are your life stories? 
And there are a lot of them. I mean, did anybody doubt that when Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, did they ever doubt what he, that he really meant it? And that gave him a lot of fuel to go to a lot of scary places in the name of uh, civil rights. In uh, my coaching practice, I run up against this uh, depressingly often, is particularly women whose mother, when they were children, told them they would fail which is incredible. And we, you and I could probably talk for a long time about the dynamics of mothers and daughters and, and women and mothers with their own yeah, issues. But it's a very powerful motivator when, when I've seen woman after woman go out there and say, I am going to go after that promotion as terrified as I am about what it's going to take together all to get there, all the speeches I'm going to have to make, all the reports I'm going to have to write, all the people I'm going to have to prove myself to, so I can show my mother that I will not fail. That's a core driver, and it's very powerful. So those are the four steps that get you on the journey through that discomfort towards something bigger. All right. Thank you. Well, well there's, there's much I'd love to dig into here, so I'll go in reverse order. All right. So these, these drivers... You know, it's interesting in that the notion that I've got to prove to my mother that uh, I could do it and I'm awesome or or like I, I want to stick it to this competitor because, you know, I don't like them at all. You know, it, it doesn't have to be laudable, Pete. It just has yeah. to be so. Well, well, that's what I was I was intrigued is is that um, and I guess I've been there, too, with regard to sort of, quote unquote, noble drivers and, and maybe less so. Uh, is there any downside to tapping into a less laudable driver <laughs> that's a good question a downside well you don't use it as your press clips you don't oh, sure. say okay we're gonna go get the guys although you know ford made a whole its whole vision for a long time was we don't want to we want to beat chevy and that did rather well for them so it's not always a bad thing to do i don't think so uh, unless you let it consume you in a negative way if you just say, this is what I'm using for, and then use it for the positive of the endpoint you want, then I think it's very useful. If you use it to basically revisit and wallow in past a slights from somebody, that's not so good. All of these involve uh, leadership in some way, whether it's for your personal career or for your team. You, leadership simply about having an idea to make things better and bringing other people along to help support you in it. And in when you want to get help with your idea, you want to be able. It's sort of it's really a sales job. You need to motivate other people to come into the tent. To join you here. So having a negative driver is not something, as I say, you translate into your motivational speech. You say, you think it out a different way. It's what if you win this bid, the group will win for itself and how life will be better as a result of this. So you, you need to make a division between what inside is making you go versus what it is that you need to use on the outside to uh, socialize it and help get other people to help you come along on it. Mm -hmm. Now, you also mentioned back to the, the self-sabotaging behaviors that you'll, you'll note that these are just sort of responses to natural defensiveness that's, that's popping up. And so you offered a, a couple kind of particular prescriptions, like if, if you start the personalizing, here's what to do instead. 
I'd love to get your take on, are there any sort of universal tips that you'd suggest in terms of if you find your defensiveness is bubbling up and you're starting to go down whatever your particular unique self-sabotaging flavor may be, are there any kind of universal things that can help get you back on track? Yeah, uh, there's something I call the, the hook cycle. And the hook cycle is begins with you being triggered by something. And I'll give you a quick story to demonstrate it so you get the pieces. Cheryl was a senior project manager at a company, and she really wanted be, to be promoted to director. And so she made a point of really going the extra mile with the client to dazzle them so she would do well with them and then finally get promoted. Well, one day Cheryl heard via the grapevine that Michael, who worked for her, had told her boss that the client was unhappy about their services. Well, this is the first Cheryl heard about them. And she went into this great angry place and she tended to personalize again she had uh, parents who uh, were shamers and blamers because we all carry our life history with us and you have to pay attention to that uh, but she went into this place of oh no you know and, and uh, this should never have happened instead of thinking about what the client really was saying and how this and why michael spoke to her boss she went into this reactive mode, and so she was hooked by personalizing. So the, the first part of the hook cycle is when you are hooked by something that triggers you. So the sec- what can happen in a negative hook cycle is if you don't catch yourself, then you'll go into this reactive place, which she did. So she went into this reactive place, and what she did was she goes storming to her boss and says, I can't believe Michael came and said that to you. How dare you? He, he's just playing the male chauvinist pig card. So her manager's listening to this, and so he reacts to her reaction, and he's thinking, well, she can't manage her people. I couldn't possibly promote her. And so the, the result is that she is not promoted. Well, the trick of getting to a better place is to catch yourself when you catch yourself being hooked and stop and to form a new cycle. And the new cycle is when you catch yourself and you feel it can occur different ways. You'll suddenly get almost like a stabbing feeling. You get really nervous. Sometimes if it's like micromanagement, you get dead calm. Something tips you off that you're going into a defensive place. And at that point, literally stop and it's and shift to what I call pause and reflect. And even if you are quiet for 30 whole seconds, it will stop the speeding train of reactivity. And what it does, it allows you to start to detach from all that emotional emotionalizing and start to shift to a place of looking at it differently. And then the second part, and you build a new cycle and a more productive one. And in that new cycle, first thing is to give yourself compassion. We all are human. We all have things that cause us to react. And that's okay. But to forgive ourselves for that and acknowledge it. But then say, but this isn't going to work. Me going storming into Michael's, uh, to my boss's office and complaining about Michael, not so hot. I need to come up with a new strategy. 
So then in looking at a new strategy, that's when it's all like opening the aperture of a camera. As the more you detach and breathe deep or whatever helps to bring your, your bring in some calm, you literally can see more what's happening and you look around and say, okay, what do I need to learn here? It goes back to that not knowing thing. What is it do I not know? One of the things that Cheryl did not know was why Michael said, talk to her boss first. Well, it turns out, and she found, so she went and talked to Michael and she learned that, well, it wasn't a planned event. He just happened to be standing at, in the coffee room next to the boss and he just heard this information. He just thought he was being helpful as they're both pouring their coffee. But he had also worked uh, for his own, for himself for 17 years and this chain of command thing was brand new. He'd never heard of anything like that. And the last thing he, that ever occurred to him was to be undercutting her. So she realized that she needed to understand Michael a whole lot better to get a more constructive working relationship. And so the next step is to work on that relationship. And another piece of it, obviously, they have to go solve for the client problem, which they did. Now, this actually comes from a real life event. I happen to have been the coach for both the big boss and Cheryl. So these are not the real names. But they did go and rehabilitate it, both with Michael and Cheryl. And they also were able to rehabilitate the issue with the client. And six months later, she was uh, promoted to director. Excellent. Well, that's that's nice to see how that unfolds there and makes it all the more real. And along with making it real, you mentioned a couple of those behaviors. And I'd love to hear a few more so that listeners might recognize themselves in them. I think one of my defensive behaviors is, is I just sort of I start the argument without the other person. It's like, I can't believe he would say that after this, this, and this, and this. Well, he might think this, but I'd say that. And then he might say this, and I'd say that. <laughs> so it's like, I've already got the Shame whole script. <laughs> the whole script is playing out before me, and I'm getting kind of riled up, you know, about uh, an argument that has not happened and, and very well probably won't happen. And so I, I've sort of noticed that in myself. So I try to you know, take a breath in those situations. Uh, what are some of the other patterns that show up again and again there? I mean, look at our political environment right now. Nobody's listening to anybody. Because everybody's going around basically bullying each other because it's a very anxious, anxiety-provoked thing. And it's not terrible. It's very human. But what it does is, again, it's like something that person said to you. So you, you took off, triggered you. How could you recognize that in yourself? And then be able to pull up long enough to say, well, how do you get there? And, um, you know, most of my experience has been, and I've watched this in negotiation training, is the winners tend to be the ones who are quieter and ask more questions. I'm not saying you never can correct, but something to consider is what is it that I can do here to learn more about what I don't know about this person's position and why it is we're not on the same page? Mm -hmm. That's a handy one. Thank you. And any other patterns associated with when when the defensiveness is starting to bubble up? Perfectionism is a big one. They're ten hooks, and uh, perfectionism is, of course, a rabid fear of failure. And so the perfectionist thinks if they just keep doing it until they get it right, they'll be okay. And so almost like a safety thing. And it's a great way of um, spinning. Because it, there's no endpoint to it. There's no such thing as something that's perfect. 
But a lot of people get into perfectionism. For example, if they're going to go out and sit down and, and do a customer survey with a customer who they know might not be happy, they may you might they might find themselves uh, spending a long time getting the wording just right on this survey, rather than picking up the phone, calling up the customer, and saying, "Hey, I need to come see you and uh, learn some things here." It's perseverative uh, behavior, it just it's round and around. And what it can do is, while you're trying to get the perfect product, you're avoiding making a decision, and it can be a real career ender. You see a lot of perfectionists in a number two seat, not a number one seat, because they'll just keep going to try to make it nicer and better and cleaner. You see this in finance a lot. You see it among engineers. I mean, we all got pieces of this. I was a lawyer for years. Believe me, they got perfectionism down. And But what it does is if you don't make a decision, then you're not accountable. And so you, if you're not accountable for something, you can't fail at it. And that's the myth. But that's what keeps a lot of people in that trough. So getting out of perfectionism, again, is to first direct, catch yourself when you're doing it. When you're adjusting the font for the 14th time on this proposal, you might step back and ask yourself, am I picking on this font because the font really needs to be fixed? Or am I failing to look at whether this proposal is really answering the question that the potential client is asking, is this really going to win the deal? And particularly if it involves things that you feel stretched in trying, but it may be important to do so. So perfectionism is another big one. Uh Well, thank you. Well, Julie, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Oh, I just, I can mention a lot of things. Um, I did, when I wrote The Journey, I wrote it as a story because it's uh, full of people that are familiar. And it, all of these things are very typical. And yet the final uh, goal is to pursue something better, the adventure of improving things and making a difference. And I think that's worth all the sweat along the way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, Oscar Wilde, be yourself. Everyone else is taken. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Well, um, I tend to look at biographies as, a, as telling important stories. And I look at research too, but if you, a couple of books, for example, that are very illustrative of what I'm talking about is uh, Shoe Dog, which is Phil Knight's uh, biography of how Nike was formed. You spend the whole time wondering how it is possible that this company ever succeeded to make a dime, much less a billion dollars. There is a study. It has an important moral. It's for people who love animals like I do. It's not a great one to read, but it's uh, Martin Seligman's uh, Learned Helplessness. And it's all about how people can get into situations where they feel like they have no control over the end. So they just quit trying. And you see that in lots of different ways. But it's, uh, it was done in the early 50s. It remains true today. And um, it has powerful implications. And the moral of that one is to find out what it is you can control and to go towards that. And how about a favorite tool so that it helps you be awesome at your job? One is free writing. 
Uh, free writing is uh, something where you don't sit and organize it. You just uh, sit down and you just start writing. And the handwriting's better than typing because it's kinetic. It's shown, it actually slows you down so you think better. And it, it improves the memory that you uh, comes out of that work. But it also tends to personalize it more. And free writing is, you say, I just wish I could go down there and tell them what I think. The reason they're bugging me about this, it doesn't, it can sound like a word salad, but by dumping it out of your head and putting it on a piece of paper, you start to see things bubble to the surface of uh, what are the themes, the patterns here that are showing up for me? Oh, I see. These are all instances where somebody treated me like a little thing and put me down, and that makes me crazy. Another one is whiteboarding, is that people are very visual, and whether you're one person, two, or a room full, there's something very powerful to going up to the wall and drawing shapes, words, colors, lines, whatever, to talk about what you're thinking about. And uh, I find it's less structured. And, it, and it, uh, again, it surfaces patterns in thinking and can be very powerful to getting to a better place. Uh-huh. And how about a favorite habit? <laughs> well, if you knew me, you'd think this would be strange, but uh, sitting still. Uh, I, because I like to be very active, strong bias for action, you might have figured that out. When I really want to get sit in sit down and figure something out the idea of sitting still makes me shift into a different gear and quit um, distracting myself with other stuff it makes it impossible for me to run any place else i just sit feel breathe and let my head drift and i don't do it for very long i do it for most 5 minutes but it's re-energizing and it can be very clarifying because it's when you have a little meeting with yourself like that, it's amazing what shows up in the agenda. Mm-hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks and they repeat it frequently? I, uh, one of the things that I hear a lot is uh, about leadership. It's not a job. It's a mindset. It's a state of being where you're always looking for the bigger opportunity and whatever is going on that you can, uh, if something goes wrong in your job, don't just fix the little thing like the team didn't put the paper in on time. What's the bigger deal that's going on? And uh, why is it that they didn't come through on that? Did they not understand it? Did they think, realize that nobody's going to read it? Did they think that data were flawed? What was sitting behind that stuff that stopped them from doing it? Because that's what you go to fix. So I look at the mindset is always looking for that bigger opportunity. If folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? At my website, juliebenazette.com, or uh, there's uh, Author Central off of Amazon. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Dare to dream, face your fears, and go for it. Beautiful. Well, Julie, this has been a ton of fun. I wish you lots of luck and, and more adventures and, and more unknowing <laughs> places. Guaranteed. <laughs> Thank you very much. One of my favorite themes for this conversation with Julie is this discomfort with the unknown can cause us to avoid asking the the major questions that need to be asked or 
focusing on the key things that need our focus. And so I, I dug it when she said, hey, if something goes wrong in your job, don't just fix the little thing like the team didn't get the paper on, on time. What's the bigger deal that's going on there and how micromanagement and perfectionism can also be similar approaches to avoiding the bigger, perhaps scarier question, but to go there because in fact, not only will that be more productive, but it can even be a thrill, a reward of improving and growing in some really cool directions. And we heard from Hal Gregerson a couple episodes ago that really cool things happen when you delve into some of those questions that are uncomfortable. They can really be the source of tremendous breakthrough. So anyway, cool stuff from Julie. Hope you dug that and more. The show notes, transcript, the links, that's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F387. If you haven't already, hope you'll push subscribe. We'll hear from our next guest. It is Aaron Levy. He's talking about why most managers suck and what to do about it. And specifically, we really go deep on listening. He shared a really transformational tip that I've been applying. I think you will dig as well. So hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.